God fathers God the Son as it refers to his humanity. And so the term Son of God is not a depreciating term in Scripture, like he's less than God. You could translate it God the Son. That's why when Jesus is asked, are you the Son of God? He says, I am. And Caiaphas tears his robes. You blaspheme. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today is part three in the conclusion of Pastor Carl's sermon entitled, Jesus Christ, God in Human Flesh. So far this week, we have been learning about the fact that Jesus Christ was both fully God and fully man. Today, Dr. Brogy warns us about minimizing Jesus' role as God by seeing him just as a friend. Let's join Pastor Carl now as he continues. Now we've got a distorted image of Jesus. Oh, he's my buddy, buddy. He's my friend. Well, he can be your friend, but friend, he's a whole lot more than just a friend. He is the eternal God. And because we paint such a distorted view of the Lord Jesus Christ, we can have a multitude of decisions, but without disciples. People who have never really come to grips with who Jesus Christ is. And so now John goes on and he fills out the comments of John the Baptist with his own. Not only is he preexistent and preeminent, he is full of grace and truth. Verse 16. For of his fullness we have all received in grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. And so in verse 14, the Apostle Paul, I mean the Apostle John, along with other eyewitnesses, says, we have seen his glory. But now he says, we have received his grace. And see, that's an important relationship. And John weds the two together. It's not enough to see his glory. See, a lot of people understand that he is the Son of God. But you must receive his grace. And so he puts the two together. You see his glory when you understand who he is. You receive his grace when you understand what he has done. Notice, for the law was given through Moses, says John. But grace and truth were realized or came through Jesus Christ. When the law was given through Moses, it peeled out there in Mount Sinai with thunder and smoke. It was a terrifying scene of the almighty presence of God. And on two cold stone tablets, God gave it, not even by himself, but mediated, the Bible says, through angels, the law. But when grace and truth showed up, it showed up as a warm, vibrant human being brought into the world through the God-man, Jesus Christ. Now, grace, like glory is one of those indispensable words that we must know if we are going to understand the Scripture. Notice four times it comes in these verses. Verse 14, it says he is full of grace and truth. Verse 16, he speaks that we've received grace upon grace. Verse 17, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. So if the glory of God refers to the outward shining of God's inward being, what does the grace of God refer to? Well, grace... Described in the Bible speaks of God's favor. Circle one of those graces, would you? Put a little arrow out in the margin of your Bible and write down Romans 11 and verse 6. Romans 11, 6. Let me quote it to you. It says, For if it, God's favor, for if it is by grace, if our salvation is by grace, 
it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. See what he's saying? If it is by grace, if God saves you and puts you in a right standing before him by grace, it is no longer on the basis of anything you do. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. And so grace is God's generosity. Grace is God taking the initiative. Grace is God to the rescue. Grace is God pursuing us to the cross. Grace is God stooping, God loving, God saving. And grace like glory has its clearest expression in John's theology at the cross. Maybe this acronym would be helpful to you. Most of you know it. G-R-A-C-E. God's Riches at Christ's expense. Or maybe another acronym of grace. God reaching after his creatures everywhere. Grace is what God gives us that we don't deserve. It brings forgiveness. It brings peace with God where the hostility between me and God is gone through the blood of Christ who became my substitute. Grace gives me new life where the Holy Spirit is poured out into my heart, making me a new person in Jesus Christ. Now, please note, it says, for of his fullness. And if you have a Bible with footnotes out there in the margin, it gives you the literal Greek rendering. It says, out of his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. We have not yet received the fullness of grace. The Bible says we received out of his fullness, grace upon grace. So it's grace following more grace. God saves us by grace. And once we're saved by grace, he makes us more like Jesus Christ by grace. And someday in eternity, we will see the fullness of grace. Now understand in John's thinking, grace and truth are inseparable. They are wedded together. Grace Without truth would be deceitful, it would be unjust, and yet truth without grace would damn us, it would condemn us. The truth is, is that we've all sinned, and the wages of sin is death, and if God simply dealt with us on the basis of truth, we would all be eternally lost in the sight of an infinitely holy God. But he deals with us on the basis of grace and truth. It's not grace at the expense of truth. It's not truth at the expense of grace. But grace and truth in perfect balance and proportion found in Jesus Christ. Christ, by his life, death, and resurrection, met all of the demands of the law so that God can forgive our sin. For of his fullness we have received grace upon grace. And we're going to see it all the way through this gospel. Again, it's here just in kernel form. We'll see it in Nicodemus. That religious man who lives a very moral life, but he's lost, as Jesus describes him, and he is told that he must be born again. We will see it at the woman at the well who's been married five times, and now she's with a sixth man that she's not even married to. We will see it with the woman who is caught in the very act of adultery. And in every instance that we will examine, when the recipient embraces the grace of God, he goes for broke. They totally give themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ because they recognize that the favor of God becomes a motivation to serve the living God. That is going to become a major theme that John is going to bring home. Paul said it in this way in his letter to Titus. He said, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. God's grace appeared, how? In Jesus Christ. 
and by his death and resurrection, he provided a way of salvation for all men. The atonement was for all men. It was not particular, it was not limited, but for every tongue and tribe and nation, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. So verse 11 of this book tells us that grace saves us. But verse 12 says that grace teaches us. It instructs us like the training of a child. And please note, Paul says us. Circle that in your mind. He's making a contrast between the grace of God that is offered and the grace of God that is received. God's grace is offered to all men, but to whom does God's grace instruct? Us. Just believers. Only those who've received the gift of God's grace. Now, you know there's a lot of distorted teaching about the grace of God in our day. A lot of people reason that since preachers like me teach eternal security, what we often uh, dumb down in the phrase, once saved, always saved, that that means that once you're saved, you can do whatever you want. And of course, John does not teach that. John, through Every example he shows, through every recipient in his gospel of the grace of God, they are changed people. They have a new being from the inside out and a new proclivity for the things of God. No one, I can't think of any other writer in the New Testament more than John who will teach us about the eternal security of the believer. But when people hear of the grace of God, they often twist it and distort it. Much like when Paul at the end of Romans 5 says, he says, listen, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Where there's big sinners, there's big amounts of grace. And so some people conclude, well, with more sin comes more grace. I might as well sin it up. And Paul says, meganoina, may it never be. Perish the thought. No one of the marks that you have had a birth from above is that you've been changed. I met with an individual this week. She said, oh, I've been saved. Oh, pastor, I know I'm not living like I should. I know when I, won't get, when I get to heaven, I won't have much. But praise the Lord, I've been saved by the grace of God. This woman who's been living with a man for the last five years. I said, honey, I think you've got a distorted view of grace. Because the grace of God that saves you is the grace of God that instructs you. And when you're instructed in saving grace, it says no to worldly desires. And yes, to live righteously, sensibly, and godly in the present age. Now, I selected these verses among others because these three concepts that God's grace not only negatively teaches us to say no, but positively it teaches us to say yes to sensible, righteous, and godly living. Those three concepts are covered through John's gospel. It's a major theme. God's grace teaches you to say yes to certain things, to live sensibly. To live sensibly speaks of a proper relationship with self. To live righteously speaks of a proper relationship with others, to deal with them justly, fairly, honestly, and to live godly, that speaks of a proper relationship with God. And so the grace of God teaches us in three spheres, inward with ourselves, outward with our neighbor, and upward with our God. It empowers us in this present age to live as we ought to. And so we will see 
John expressed these three dimensions all the way through it. Grace upon grace, saved by grace, instructed by grace, living by grace, continual grace, life-changing grace, a river of grace that is available to the believer. That's the measure of the incarnation because of his death. Third, I want us to consider not just the marvel and the measure of the incarnation, but the meaning of his incarnation. Now again, this is just the introduction. It's in kernel form, but he's going to unfold it for us. So if you stay all the way through this gospel, it's going to explode in your heart and your mind. And he gives us three very plain statements that he links together concerning the meaning of his incarnation. First, he tells us no one has seen God. Look at verse 18. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Now this statement, no one has seen God at any time, is not a reference to God the Son, because obviously people saw him. But in this context, it is a reference to God the Father. Now why is that? Why is it that no one has ever seen God the Father? Well, Jesus will tell us when he speaks to the woman at the well, because he says God is spirit. And so the statement, no one has seen God at any time, is a reference to the Father, though it may raise some problems in your thinking. So you need to work your way through this. After all, does not Isaiah the prophet say, My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty, in Isaiah 6. Well, what about the other appearances of God in the Old Testament? Please understand that God never revealed Himself in the Old Testament to the eyes of a man. Well, what did they see? Well, go back and read the record. Moses saw his afterglow, his back. Isaiah saw his Shekinah glory. Jacob, when he says he saw God, he later tells us that he saw the angel of the Lord who wrestled with him. And in each case, they saw a manifestation of God, but no one saw the absolute essence of God. Why? Because the essence of God is invisible. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6.16, He is the one whom no one has seen or can see. So when John says, no man has seen God, or in his first epistle he will write, no man has beheld him at any time, he's speaking of God's essential nature. God can certainly be revealed in the world around us, in his working in history, but no one can see God himself. They may see him in a theophany or an anthropomorphism, but no one can see the essence of the Lord Jesus. But he goes on to tell us a very important truth. Jesus Christ, the only begotten. Consider that statement first. No one has seen God the Father, but of the Lord Jesus. No one has seen God, he says, of the Father. But he also tells us Jesus Christ is the only begotten. Now think your way through this statement. It is very important. Almost all of us in this room can probably quote John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten. Now what does only begotten mean? Well, it's used twice in this chapter. First here in verse 14. Again in verse 18, it's used two times in chapter 3, the most preached chapter of the Bible in all of history. And it's used one other place in the New Testament. Now, only begotten is translating one particular Greek word, monogene. You've heard it before. The word monogene means one of a kind. God gave his one of a kind. You might translate it, God gave his uniquely begotten son. 
Now, Jesus Christ, as you know, was the virgin-born Son of God. To give you a flavor of the meaning of the word, its other use is found outside of the Gospel of John and out of John's first epistle, and it's found in Hebrews chapter 11. Listen to this. We're told by faith, Abraham, when he was tested there on Mount Moriah, he offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten, his monogenes son. Now, in what sense was Isaac offering his uniquely begotten son? Well, Isaac, as you know, pictures an impossible birth. When he was born, Abraham was 100. Sarah was 90. The Bible says they were, their bodies were both as good as dead. And so they were long past their ability to conceive children. And so Isaac is a uniquely begotten son, not virgin begotten, but uniquely begotten in the sense that he was given to an elderly couple way past their ability to conceive. And of course, the Bible teaches us that Isaac is a type. He's an illustration of Christ. Jesus said, the scriptures, the Old Testament, speak of me. And so all the way through the Old Testament, by direct statement or by picture or prophecy, you see pictures of the Lord Jesus. You see a picture of him and Isaac, and that he was uniquely begotten. You see a picture of him and Isaac up there on Mount Moriah, also called in the New Testament Mount Calvary, where Abraham takes his only begotten, his uniquely begotten son to slay him. Now, I am born of Richard John Brogy, who lives in Worcester, Massachusetts. And uh, since my dad is a man, I am a man. If my dad were a monkey, I would be a monkey. But I am a man because like father, like son. Now, God is Christ's father in the sense that when the second person of the Trinity left heaven to take on human flesh, his humanity was not fathered by Joseph's seed. He was uniquely begotten in that the Most High through the Holy Spirit overshadowed his womb. The Holy Spirit, the, the, the angel said, will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, because this is a work of the Most High God the Father, the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. And so God fathers God the Son as it refers to his humanity. And so the term Son of God is not a depreciating term in Scripture, like he's less than God. You could translate it God the Son. That's why when Jesus is asked, are you the Son of God? He says, I am. And Caiaphas tears his robes. You blaspheme. Now why am I a sinner? I am a sinner because my father is a sinner. Why was he a sinner? Because his father was a sinner and his father was a sinner. And Acts 17 says we go all the way back to Adam and Eve. We're all from one blood. And so as a sinner, I have death written into my person and I can redeem absolutely no one. So God would have to come to earth through a supernatural conception in order to bypass the normal means of conception whereby the sin nature is transmitted. And so in order to be sinless, in order to escape the consequences of Adam's sin, the Son of God would need to be born of a virgin. And in that sense, he is the monogene, he is the uniquely begotten Son. Listen, in order for Christ to save you, he would have to be sinless. But for him to be sinless, he could not come through the normal means of conception. Otherwise, he could not redeem you. 
Now, God is holy, God is just, and he must punish sin. And the Bible says the penalty for sin is death. And the Bible says the life is in the blood. You take blood out of a person's body, you take enough out, they're going to be dead. And so the Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. But not just any kind of blood can redeem. Innocent, sinless blood must redeem because your blood, my blood, has been infected by sin. And the only one without sin is God himself. And yet the Bible says God is a spirit. All in Adam of sin, so none, no son of Adam could qualify. No angel could qualify. And so God would have to become a man. He would have to be truly human, and yet he would have to be unquestionably sinless, and that is why the Lord Jesus was virgin conceived. Please understand, he was not the son of God because he was virgin born. He was virgin born because he is and was and will forever be the Son of God. Friend, He came to earth that you might go to heaven. He was born of a virgin that you might be born again. And this one who came took the sting out of death. Death has been conquered. The grave has been swallowed up in His death and resurrection. And so someday we will all live those who have called upon Him in faith in God's wonderful place called heaven. Now understand... Here's just the introduction to the gospel. It's in kernel form. He's going to develop it more fully. No one has seen God. Jesus is the only begotten God. And then he says, the only begotten has explained him. Let's read all of verse 18 as we close. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Now you and I could not understand God until God put a face on himself. And he did that. In the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see that word explained? Ex-a-gam-a-i. We get our English word exegesis from it. You know what a pastor is supposed to do? He is supposed to exegete the scriptures. What do we mean when we talk about exegesis of the Bible? It's when a pastor in faithful calling to feed God's sheep, he reads out what God has written for all time for all to see. He is not to read in. He's not to bring in his own ideas, his own concepts, his own values, his own beliefs. He is to read out what God has plainly put in. And so what the Bible is telling us here is that when Jesus Christ took on human flesh as the only begotten of the Father, he has exegeted the Father. He has explained him. Do you want to see what the Father looks like? Look at the Son. And he adds this powerful Hebraism to this one who came. It says that he is in the bosom of the Father, which tells us a great deal. He did not come from the head of God to reveal the wisdom of God, though he did. He did not come from the foot of God to serve the Lord God and man, though indeed he did. But he came from the bosom of the Father to reveal the heart of God. He was in the bosom of the Father. And so if you want to see God's love for you, look at the Son. So many years ago, Helen Keller was born into this world both deaf and blind. I mean, can you imagine that? Having a baby, deaf and blind. A baby who could not hear her mother's voice. And a baby who could not see her mother's face. 
And do you know what they tell us Helen's mother used to do? She would weep over that child and she would say, Oh, Helen, 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 your mother loves you. How can I help you see that I love you? Thank God one day Ann Sullivan, her teacher, broke through to her world, into her world, and she understood her mother's love. God has been saying and weeping over this world, you have sinned, your sin deserves judgment, but I love you, I love you, and I want you to know it. And so God broke into this world through Jesus Christ. We have beheld his glory. Have you seen his glory this morning? It is not enough, however, to see his glory. You must receive his grace. Tens of thousands of people in our own county know he is the son of God. But they have not received his grace. Where they can say, my name is in God's book. And when he dies, however I am taken, when I die, however I am taken, the moment I die, I will be absent from the body and present with the Lord. Don't weep at my funeral, friend. Don't weep for me. Because I will be more alive than I have ever been in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ because I have received grace upon grace. Let's stand for prayer. Now, our Father, we thank you for this magnificent prologue given by the Holy Spirit through the Apostle John that we might stop and consider this morning the wonder of the incarnation. We thank you that we serve one who is God of very God, one who has taken upon himself sinless humanity that he might come to earth and redeem us and shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sin and make us in a right standing with you when we call upon him in faith. Now I wonder this morning if you've ever done that. I wonder if you're saying, well, I'm still trying my best to try to work my way to God. Friend, grace is unmerited. It's unearned. The Bible says the free gift of God is eternal life. It says if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of good works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. The Bible says you're saved by grace through belief that it's not of yourself. It's God's gift. It's not a reward for the good works you've done so nobody can brag. Have you ever come in humility, broken, helpless, like the outcasts of his day were willing to do and the religious folks who thought they were good enough were unwilling to do? Have you ever come in simple faith to this one who is God of very God and said to him, Lord Jesus, save me? You don't have the promise of tomorrow. And Christ may return tonight and seal this whole thing up forever. Today is the day of salvation, the Bible says. Whoever will call upon his name will be saved. Today is the day of salvation. Don't harden your heart. Would you in softness of heart come to the Lord Jesus and in faith, knowing God cannot lie, that God will keep his word. Would you say, Lord Jesus, save me, a sinner. And because you have saved me, I will openly, publicly, unashamedly confess you before men and follow you with all of my life. Father, I pray today that you might help someone to do that, to come to the Savior who loved them, who redeemed them, 
that they might find life indeed. I ask it for his honor and in his name. Amen. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program John 002. Maybe you have a question that you would like to ask Pastor Brogy personally. You can do that tomorrow between 11 and noon Eastern during his live call-in program, The Bible Line. You can also listen to The Bible Line online at wagp.net. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to search the scriptures.